welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today on God is Open, we are going to be reviewing the book Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety by E.R. Dodds. Not long ago, God is Open reviewed the book Augustine, Conversions to Confessions, and that was by Robert Lane Fox, and he also has a book, and that's called Pagans and Christians. This review today is not to be confused with that book. I also have that book, but the Dodds book is particularly interesting and possibly even more interesting than the Robert Lane Fox book. The Dodds book is particularly focused on the theological developments in pagan and in Christian societies around the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. This is where he gets the subtitle of his book, An Age of Anxiety. And he defines this phase and he describes this phase as a phase where people, Christians and pagans especially, were moving away from the material world. They began to focus on the spiritual, on the spiritual realm. What does it mean to be spiritual? What kind of spiritual realm exists? And how does one interface with that spiritual realm? There's a lot of transitioning in thought from previous forms of religion into these new forms of spiritualization. And this is why he calls it the Age of Anxiety. He says, A story which begins with Philo and St. Paul and ends with Augustine and Bothesis is much too long to be told in four lectures, even if I were competent to tell the whole of it. I have therefore judged it best to concentrate my attention on the crucial period between the ascension of Marcus Aurelius and the conversion of Constantine, the period when material decline was steepest and the ferment of new religious feelings most intense. In calling it an age of anxiety, I have in mind both its material and moral insecurity. Notice that this period, which is in examination, does not include Paul, Philo, or even Augustine. A lot of Christians claim that all these innovations in Christianity, which incorporate the Platonism of this time, this, this period that we're talking about, they believe that it began in Augustine. And that's just not true. And there's distinct reverberations of Platonic thought in earlier church fathers. And this touches on that. It touches on the entire mentality of the ancient world in that context. And these are who our earliest Christian fathers were going up against, were these these Platonists, these people who are obsessed with the spiritual world. And that's who they had to defend themselves from. Origen, in his writings, has to defend himself from Celsus and, and other pagan philosophers. And they do so in such a way that it incorporates these, these otherworldly elements, these Platonistic ideas. One of the key features in this book that we are reviewing, Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety, is it's not written by a Christian. It's written by someone who has a very keen interest in pagan thought, pagan philosophy, pagan development of religion. And he's more acquainted with the pagans than he is the Christians. What this does is it provides to us a valuable third-party point of view. Someone who's not trying to sugarcoat Christianity or force Christianity into certain categories, but someone who's looking to see how Christianity relates to the pagan religions. And that's his goal. He writes, I'm interested less in the issues which separate the combatants than in the attitudes and experiences which bound them together. 
So he's looking at overall religion in the ancient world among the various sects in these world to figure out in which ways they have commonalities. This is not apologetics piece. This is not attacking Christianity. This is not attacking Platonism or Greek philosophy. This is just an overview and trying to understand their modes of thought. And I believe the author, I think he's very well acquainted with mysticism. And there's this element of mysticism that runs through this book because this period that we're talking about was deeply involved in mysticism. And Dodds defines mysticism. He quotes another author, but it's this. Mysticism is the belief in the possibility of an intimate and direct union of the human spirit with the fundamental principle of being. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Platonism and mysticism, what he's saying there is there's, there's a union between human beings and God. There's like a merging of the two. Uh, he goes on and says, a union which constitutes at once a mode of existence and mode of knowledge different from and superior to normal existence and knowledge. If we recall back to our podcast on Augustine, he was very involved in these introspective meditations where he tried to ascend to the spiritual world to gain union with God, the intellectual principle the ultimate unity, the ultimate good, the summon bonum. And so Augustine was very deep into this mysticism, this attempted remergence of the soul into the one. And a lot of Christianity at his time and before had devolved into this mystical experience. Christians were not the only ones. They were just following suit of the pagans. The pagans by that time had mainly abandoned these ideas of a pantheon of gods or polytheism. Let's listen to what Dodds writes about that. He says, what's this debate about? It touched on far more problems than I can mention here, but the main issues were not those which modern Christian might expect. In the first place, it was not a debate between monotheism and polytheism. It had been said with some justification that Celsus was a stricter monotheist than Origen. Certainly he judged the Christians blasphemous in setting another on the same level as a supreme god. He himself retained, it is true, a kind of residual polytheism. He thought we should pay respect to the subordinate gods, or demons, who are the servants and ministers of the supreme god. But Origen too believed that God employs invisible husbandsmen and other governors. Elsewhere, Dodds talks about how the Christians had to start adopting pagan ideas. He writes, the human qualities and human sufferings of Jesus play singularly little part in the propaganda of this period. They were felt as embarrassment in the face of pagan criticism. Remember, when the spiritual is elevated above the physical, and this is an age in which everything needs to be spiritual. The material world is corrupt. The material world it could be evil, it's uh, not the good, it's not the perfection, it's a falling away from the perfection. And so any human elements in Jesus is seen as an embarrassment. This is why when we read the Gnostics, they make these absurd claims like Jesus didn't have a digestive system. He didn't eat and poop and stuff like that like normal people because he was more of a spiritual being. And these things had to be invented because the age we're talking about is one which championed the spiritual over the material. Dodds writes, Joseph Bidez describes our period as one in which men were ceasing to observe 
the external world and try to understand it, utilize it, or improve it. They were driven in upon themselves. The idea of the beauty of the heavens and of the world went out of fashion and was replaced by that of the infinite. So people are turning away from ideas of the universe being all-encompassing, the universe holding true beauty and true unity, and instead turning to introspection or trying to understand and focus on the infinite. Dodds recounts the transition from Greek thinking of a universe-centered philosophy into one of a universe as antithetical to the spiritual philosophy. He writes, as time went on, this traditional antithesis between the celestial world and the terrestrial was more and more heavily emphasized. And he's saying from Plato, because most of these ideas are flowing down from Plato. And it was increasingly used to point to a moral. In the recurrent taupos of the flight of the soul through the universe, imagined as taking place in a dream, or after death, or sometimes just in waking t- contemplation, we can trace a growing contempt for all that may be done and suffered beneath the moon. So people were looking for escapism. They were looking for escape from the universe. The world that we live in, the material world, was seen as corrupt. It was changing. It was something that people needed an escapist theology to get away from. And if you recall our previous podcast, we talked about reclaiming biblical eschatology. This is what it's about. Biblical eschatology is corrupted by this escapism that was very popular in pagan theology just after the time of Christ. And this was the theology that the Christian church adopted in fighting against these pagan ideas because Christianity was embarrassing to Christians. Pagans at this time, and even Christians of this time, started adopting this notion that reality is fleeting. We are in a temporal state. Recall back to our podcast on origin. He believed that everything was cyclical, that we were just in a stage of expanding away from the one and then being retracted into the one, and it would all cycle back and forth. And so everything that we do, it doesn't matter in the grand schemes of thing. And and this was the idea of the pagans. Dodge writes on Plotinus, For him, as for the H. Plato, man's earnest is God's play, performed in world theater by fair and lovely living puppets, puppets who mistake themselves for men and who suffer accordingly, though in truth they are but external shadows of the inner man, the only true existent, truly substantial person. This is linked with Plotinus's general doctrine that action is everywhere a shadow of contemplation and an inferior substitute for it. When cities are sacked, their men are massacred, their women raped, it is but a transitory moment in the endless drama. Other and better cities will arise one day, and the children conceived in crime may prove better men than their fathers. That seems to be his final word on the tragic history of his time. From Plotinus, this attitude of contemptuous resignation was transmitted to later Neoplatonic schools, Christian as well as pagan. To Gregory of Nicaea, for example, human affairs are but the play of children, building sandcastles which are promptly washed away. As Father Dan Luo says, his entire work is penetrated by a deep feeling of the unreality of the sensible world, which he calls Goetia, a magical illusion, echoing a phrase of Palfrey, 
And Augustine, in turn, declares that this life is nothing but the comedy of the human race. So we see that the contempt for the material world, the contempt for a possible restored earth, the contempt for continuation of life on the material world, led to people having a sense of futility in all that we say and do. The material world, that's not our final destination. The material world, that's not what we focus on. What's instead focused on is the absolute, the unchanging, the intelligible realm. And that's the final destination for all good philosophers in this time period. There was some conflict in how this all worked out. Plotinus, he had enemies of the Gnostics, the Christian Gnostics. To the Christian Gnostics, the entire material world was evil. There was no fellowship between the material world and the unchanging. Dodds writes, To the majority of the Gnostics, it was unthinkable that such a world, that's this world, should have been created by the supreme God. It must be the handiwork of some inferior demiurge, either, as Valentinius thought, an ignorant demon unaware of any better possibility or as Marcion thought, uh, the harsh and unintelligent god of the Old Testament, or again, as in other systems, some angel or angels in revolt against God. So the Gnostics thought that this world was a mistake. This world was met, created by an evil being. This world wasn't intended by God. Whereas in Platonism, this world is either a natural consequence of the one reflecting upon itself, and spawning the world of intelligence. In this system, everything is naturally how it is supposed to be. There's, there's no alternative to not be this. It's just a natural consequence of how the in world of intelligence works that's going to spawn this lesser material world. And in this Platonistic system, because we're being spawned through necessity from the world of the unchanging, there is unchanging in us. And Plotinus, to argue against the Gnostics, this is how they argued back then. This is uh, their intelligent conversations. He says, you know what? You guys claim to have this special, secret, spiritual knowledge inside of you. But you also claim that all matter is evil, and the two cannot be combined. The two cannot have fellowship. So how could you have the intelligible world inside of yourself when you claim that the material world cannot connect the world of intelligence. Dodd notes, as we did in our podcast on Origin, that Origin's idea was that this world is the creation of these inferior beings that became bored. So Origin is basically sharing the beliefs of the Gnostics in the creation of the universe. Dodds writes, Origin, however, maintained the substance of the Gnostic view. He attributed the creation to the action of certain bodiless intelligences who became bored with contemplating God and turned to the inferior. We got to remember, there's future church councils that deemed that Origen was heretical in some of his views, but this is pretty standard stuff. And he was a major influence over future Christian leaders such as Augustine. And he had major influence in his place and time over Christianity. It's only a coincidence that later his views would fall out of favor and he'd be declared heretical. He was not heretical in his day. He was a church leader. We could have as easily as we grew up in today's world under Augustinian theology, grown up under Origen's theology and the nuances of his theology. 
and Origen was pretty much under the same opinions of the Gnostics in how fundamentally reality worked. Augustine was a Gnostic too in the sense that all Gnostics were just a form of Platonism. That's true. Their theology differentiated each other in how they experienced these mystical ascents to the one and what kind of knowledge that they could bring back with them. Let's read Dodds on Plotinus versus the Gnostics. The Unio Mystica, this is the, a spiritual ascent that is talked about in Augustine, recognized by the church was a momentary illumination, granted only occasionally, perhaps but once in a lifetime. And whatever energies it might release and whatever assurance it might bestow, the human being who experienced it did not thereby shed his human condition. It was an ordinary mortal that he had to live out his life on earth. The heretical mystic, on the other hand, and this is the Gnostic mystic, as opposed to the Platonistic mystic. The heretical mystic, on the other hand, felt himself to be utterly transformed. He had not merely been united with God, he was identical with God, and would remain so forever. For the great Catholic mystics read Plotinus, for the heretical mystics read certain hermetists and the Christian Gnostics, and the distinction applies perfectly to our period. Note that, that the Catholic mystics, the Orthodox Church Fathers, they were the mystics under Plotinus. Plotinus was their teacher when it came to mysticism. And these other, the heretical mystics, their sources were the Gnostics and the Hermetists. And the distinction applies perfectly to our period. Plotinus also rejected firmly the megalomaniacal claim of the Gnostics to a monopoly of the divine presence. For him, God is present to all beings. And the power of becoming aware of that presence is a capacity which all men possess, though few use it. Remember in Augustine's sermons, he preaches to his congregations, the common man, that they can achieve spiritual ascent as well. Whereas the Gnostics believe that there is a few elect people that only they can experience this ascension to the one. And that, that's, it's, a, it's a slight differentiation between the Platonistic mystics and the Gnostic mystics. But it's a distinction nonetheless. Dodds continues, If God is not in the world, he tells the Gnostics, then neither is he in you, and you can have nothing to say about him. That's his little jab at them. He says, If you guys think that the spiritual cannot be represented in this evil, material, changing world, then how can you tell us, how can you know, how can you have any communion with that world? And that was his like his little gotcha point against the Gnostics. And in his view, in the Platonistic view, this entire reality incorporated the unchanging in some way. Origen's views also somewhat have that in mind, whereas the world is cyclical and all will merge away from the one, then merge back to the one. So Origen is... He's maybe a half Gnostic, but he incorporated some of the Platonistic ideas and some of the Gnostic ideas about ascension and the fundamental reality of the world. But Plotinus has a gotcha moment, and the Gnostics, we don't have any records that at least I know of where they can respond to this argument. If the spiritual and the material cannot know each other, 
then what are the Gnostics doing claiming that they have the divine in them, that they have the spark in them? When they are in the world, they are in the mortal world. So let's talk about the ascension. The ascension is a return to the spiritual world. Remember, God is incorporeal. God is eternal. God cannot change. God is ineffable. You can't describe him. There's this realm of existence in which God exists that we cannot understand, see, or contemplate. From this, it, the world of the unchanging spawns. And the idea of a good Platonist is to gain access to this world of the intelligence and from this world of the intelligence try to gaze towards the one that is literally platonism this is literally what augustine tried to do and this is literally what augustine tried to teach his followers these these farmers dodds has a fairly long passage that i think is very relevant so let's stick with me here this quote is actually going to be fairly long Dodds writes, he is also with his pupil Pulfrey. Remember, Plotinus had a pupil called Pulfrey, and Pulfrey wrote stuff against the Christians and on Platonism. The only person from our period who has stated in so many words to have enjoyed mystical union four times, according to Pulfrey, in the six years that the two men worked together, Plotinus lifted himself to the primal and transcendent God by meditation, and by the methods Plato indicated in the symposium. Remember, Plotinus believed that he was a good Platonist. He believed that he was following the ideas and views of Plato. He didn't think he was inventing anything new. This is me talking right now. He was a student, a disciple in his mind of Plato. And he believed that Plato had this ascension to the one, and that's what he tried to perfect. And he's the only one that we know of who actually claims to have seen God. And this was a rare occurrence. This is a rare instance that happens. I believe Augustine, he only does it once or twice, a true ascension to the one. There's these mystical experiences that they all experience time and time again, but an actual ascension, an actual view into the one, that is not very common it takes years of practice years of conditioning your body years of meditation years of introspection and then you can finally achieve it dodds writes pulfrey himself had attained the same goal but once many years later and we have the testimony of plotinus himself in the unique autobiographical passage where he speaks of occasions when this is plotinus now i awakened out of my body into myself and came to be external to all other things, and contained within myself. When I saw a marvelous beauty, and was confident, then, if ever, that I belonged to the higher order, when I actively enjoyed the noblest form of life, when I became one with the divine, and stabilized myself in the divine. Notice Plotinus's wording. Notice how he talks. He talks about this merging with the one, this this is hard to describe for him because we're using words. And, and in Platonistic ideas, the ineffable is undescribable. So he, he could try to describe it, but he can't fully communicate his union with this one. Dodds continues, Elsewhere, Plotinus has described in memorable prose 
if not the mystical union itself, at any rate the steps which lead up to it. He tells us that when we have achieved, through intellectual and moral self-training, the right disposition, we must practice a discipline of negotiation. We must think away the corporal opaqueness of the world, think away the spatial-temporal frame of reference, and at last think away even the inner network of relations. What is left? Nothing, it would seem, but a center of awareness which is potentially, but not yet actually, the absolute. And so this process of meditation that is described by Plotinus is one in which the material world gets expelled out of our mind. And we need to focus on the unchanging and anything about the world, anything about what we know and perceive and experience has to be pushed out of our body so we could focus on the unchanging. And that's the mental discipline that he worked up over the years and what he taught his followers. Dodds continues, the last stage, remember this stage that we just talked about, is just clearing the mind. It's just emptying the mind. The last stage of the experience comes by no conscious act of will. We must wait quietly for its appearance, says Plotinus, and prepare ourselves to contemplate it as the eyes waits for the sunrise. But what then happens cannot properly be described in terms of vision or of any normal cognitive act, for the distinction of the subject and object vanishes. I quote one of Plotinus's attempts at description. This is Plotinus writing, The soul sees God suddenly appearing within it, because there is nothing between. They are no longer two, but one, while the presence lasts. You cannot distinguish them. It is that union which earthly lovers imitate when they would be one flesh. The soul is no longer conscious of being in a body, or of itself as having identity, man or living being, thing or sum of things. For who is it that sees it has no leisure to see? When in the state the soul would exchange its present condition for nothing in the world, though it were offered the kingdoms of all the heavens, for this is the good and there is nothing better. Believe it or not, this is the ascension that was sought by early Christians. Augustine, in particular, sought these ascensions, tried multiple ascensions, and describes having these ascensions to the one in which he experiences this mystical union with the one. This is not Christianity. This is not biblical Christianity. This is not taught by Jesus. This is not taught by Paul. This is not taught by the Old Testament. It's not taught in the Bible. This is paganism. This is Platonism a particular form of Neoplatonism championed by Plotinus and others before him. If everything I've so far been talking about is strange, weird, hard to understand, incomprehensible, this is what early Christians believed. Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian fathers, advocated a lot of this escapist theology, a lot of this ascension theology, this is a theology that I absolutely believe that Paul was countering in Colossians 2 when he talks about vain philosophy, philosophy of the Platonist. So far in today's podcast, we've talked about how 1st and 2nd century religious thought in the Greek world was more focused on introspection, more focused on ascension theology, escapist theology, disdain of the material world, 
and how that was incorporated into Christianity and a lot of parallels in the church fathers in which they are adopting these ideas. We also talked about the interplay of the Gnostics and the Platonists and similarities and differences in their theology. But Dodds also has one last chapter that I kind of skipped over, but it's about spirituality in the ancient world. They were all under the impression that miracles were real. Jesus did miracles. uh, Other religious figures did miracles in the ancient world. And the debates weren't on whether these miracles were real or not, but whose were the better miracles and who had the longer lasting miracles. They were very spiritual in the sense that dreams were interpreted as communications from God. There's a lot of dream diaries in both pagan and Christian thought in which dreams are examined and looked at as prophecy, as communion with God. He also briefly touches on asceticism, on living a life in which the body is neglected. Remember, we're talking about how the material world was falling out of favor. Yes, the pagans had their aesthetics. Plotinus died in poverty. Plotinus neglected his body. But really, the Christians took it to the extremes. The Christians were the ones to live on the tops of pillars and stuff like that. It's just absolute, absolute craziness. But the Dodds book, I suggest that everyone pick up a copy. You can find a fairly complete online digital version just by Googling the name Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety. But it's a short book. It's easy to read. You could read it in about a day. And it has a lot of good information on just the state, the mindset of early pagans and early Christians and how the two synthesized with each other. If you have any questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. 